Chapter Twenty Six of Dawn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sunny. Dawn by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter Twenty Six. Maisie again. It came to be the accepted thing almost at once, then, that Keith Burton and John McGuire should spend their mornings together on the McGuire's back porch. In less than a fortnight young McGuire even crossed the yard arm in arm with Keith to the Burton's back porch and sat there one morning. After that it was only a question as to which porch it should be. That it would be one of them was a foregone conclusion. Sometimes the two boys talked together. Sometimes they worked on one of Keith's raised picture puzzles. Sometimes Keith read aloud from one of his books. Whatever they did, their doing, it was the great source of interest to the entire neighborhood. Not only did Mrs. McGuire and Susan breathlessly watch from their respective kitchens, but friends and neighbors fabricated excuses to come to the two houses in order to see for themselves. Children gathered along the divisional fence and gazed with round eyes of wonder but they gazed silently. Everybody gazed silently. Even the children seemed to understand that the one unpardonable sin was to let the blind boys on the porch know that they were the objects of any sort of interest. One day Maisie Sanborn came. She brought a new book for Mrs. McGuire to read, an attention she certainly had never before bestowed on John McGuire's mother. She talked one half minute about the book and five minutes about the beautiful new friendship between the two blind young men. She insisted on going into the kitchen where she could see the two boys on the porch. Then, before Mrs. McGuire could divine her purpose and stop her, she had slipped through the door and out onto the porch itself. "'How do you do, gentlemen?' she began blithely. "'I just—' But the terrified Mrs. McGuire had her by the arm and was pulling her back into the kitchen before she could finish her sentence." On the porch the two boys had leapt to their feet, John McGuire in particular looking distressed and angry. "'Who was that? Is anybody there?' he demanded. "'No, dear, not now,' in the doorway Mrs. McGuire was trying to nod assurance to the boys, and frowned banishment to Maisie Sanborn at the same moment. "'But there was someone,' insisted her son sharply. "'Just someone that brought the book for me to read, dearie, and she's gone now.' Frantically, Mrs. McGuire was motioning Maisie to make her assertion the truth. John McGuire sat down then. So, too, did Keith. But all the rest of the morning John was nervously alert for all sounds, and his ears were frequently turned toward the kitchen door. He began to talk again, too, bitterly, of the little tin cup for the pennies and the sign, Pity the Poor Blind. He lost all interest in Keith's books and puzzles, and when was not railing of the tragedy of his fate, he was sitting in gloomy silence. Keith told Susan that afternoon that if Mrs. McGuire did not keep people away from that porch when he was out there with John, he would not answer for the consequences. Susan told Mrs. McGuire, and Mrs. McGuire told Maisie Sanborn, at the same time returning the loaned book, all of which did not tend to smooth Miss Maisie's already ruffled feelings. To Dorothy, Maisie expressed her mind on the matter. "'I don't care. I'll never go there again, never,' she declared angrily. "'Nor speak to Mrs. McGuire, nor that precious son of hers, nor Keith Burton either, so there!' "'Oh, Maisie, but poor Keith isn't to blame,' remonstrated Dorothy earnestly, the color flaming into her face. 
He is, too. He's just as bad as John McGuire. He jumped up and looked just as cross as John McGuire did when I went out on that porch. And he didn't ever really want to see us. You know he doesn't. He just stands us because he thinks he's got to be polite. But Maisie, dear, he's so sensitive, and he feels his affection keenly, and— Oh, yes, that's right. Stand up for him. I knew you would, snapped Maisie crossly. And everybody knows it, too, running after him the way you do. Running after him? Dorothy's face was scarlet now. Yes, running after him, reiterated the other incisively. And you always have, trotting over there all the time with books and puzzles, candy and flowers and— "'For shame, Maisie!' interrupted Dorothy with hot indignation. "'As if trying to help that poor blind boy to while away a few hours of his time were running after him. "'But he doesn't want you to while away an hour or two of his time, and I should think you'd see he didn't. "'You could if you weren't so dead in love with him, and—' "'Maisie!' gasped Dorothy, aghast. "'Well, it's so. Anybody can see that, the way you color up every time his name is mentioned, and the way you look at him with your heart in your eyes, and—' "'Maisie Sanborn!' gasped Dorothy again. Her face was not scarlet now. It had gone dead white. She was on her feet, horrified, dismayed, and very angry. "'Well, I don't care. It's so. Everybody knows it. And when a fellow shows so plainly that he'd rather be let alone, how you can keep thrusting yourself—' But Dorothy had gone, with a proud lifting of her head and a sharp, "'Nonsense, Maisie, you are wild. We'll not discuss it any longer, please.' She had turned and left the room. But she remembered. She must have remembered, for she did not go near the Burton's homestead for a week. Neither did the next week nor the next see her there. Furthermore, though the little stand in her room had shown two new picture puzzles and a new game especially designed for the blind, it displayed them no longer after those remarks of Maisie Sanborn's. Not that Keith had them, however. Indeed, no. They were buried deep under a pile of clothing in the farther corner of Dorothy's bottom bureau drawer. At the Burton's homestead, Susan wondered a little at her absence. She even said to Keith one day, "'Why, where's Dorothy? We haven't seen her for two weeks.' "'I don't know, I'm sure.' The way Keith's lips came together over that last word caused Susan to throw a keen glance into his face. "'Now, Keith, I hope you two haven't been quarreling again,' she frowned anxiously. "'Again? Nonsense, Susan. We never did quarrel. Don't be silly.' The youth shifted his position uneasily. "'I'm thinking tain't always me that's silly,' observed Susan, with another keen glance. That girl was getting so she'd come over just natural-like again, every little while bringing in one thing or another. T'was nothing more'n a funny story to make us laugh. And what I want to know is why she stopped right off short like this for— Nonsense! tossed Keith again with a lift of his chin. Then, with an attempt at lightness that was very near a failure, he laughed. I reckon we don't want her to come if she doesn't want to, do we, Susan? Hm! was Susan's only comment, outwardly. Inwardly, she was vowing to see that young woman and to have it out with her once and for all. But Susan did not see her, nor have it out with her, for as it happened, something occurred that night so all-absorbing and exciting that even the unexplained absence of Dorothy Parkman became as nothing beside it. 
with the abrupt suddenness that sometimes makes the long-awaited for event a real shock came the news of the death of that poor old woman whose frail hand had held the wealth that susan had coveted for daniel burton and his son the two men left the next morning on the four hundred mile journey that would take them to the town where nancy holworthy had lived scarcely had they left the house before susan began preparations for their homecoming as befitted their new estate her first move was to get out all the best silver and china she was busy cleaning it when mrs mcguire came to the kitchen door what's the matter she began breathlessly where's keith john's been asking for him all the morning is mr burton sick they just telephoned from the store that mr burton had sent word that he wouldn't be down for a few days he isn't sick is he or keith i couldn't make out quite all they'd said but there was something about keith they ain't either of em sick are they oh no they're both well very well thank you there was an air half elation half superiority about susan that was vaguely irritating to mrs mcguire well you needn't be so secret about it susan she began a little haughtily but susan tossed her head with a light laugh secret i guess it won't be no secret long mr daniel burton and master keith have gone away mrs mcguire away you mean a a vacation frowned mrs mcguire doubtfully susan laughed again still with that irritating air of superiority well hardly this ain't no pleasure exertion miss mcguire still on the other hand daniel burton wouldn't be half human if he didn't get some pleasure out of it though he wouldn't so demean himself as to show it of course miss nancy holworthy is dead miss mcguire we had this signification last night no you don't mean the nancy holworthy the one that's got the money the excited interest of mrs mcguire's face and voice was great as susan herself could have desired susan obviously swelled with glory of the occasion though she still spoke with cold loftiness the one and the same miss mcguire my stars and stockings you don't say and they've gone to the funeral they have and they'll get the money now i suppose they will but are you sure you know sometimes when folks expect the money they don't get it it's been willed away to someone else yes i know but won't be here spoke susan with decision miss holworthy couldn't if she wanted to it's all foreordained and fixed beforehand daniel burton was to get just the annual while she lived and then the whole in a plump sum when she died well she's dead and now he gets it and a right tidy little sum it is too was she awful rich susan more than a hundred thousand a hundred and fifty i've heard say my gracious me and to think daniel burton having a hundred and fifty thousand dollars what in the world will he do with it susan's chin came up superbly well i can tell you one thing he'll do mrs mcguire he'll stop peddling peas and beans over that counter down there and retire to a life of ease and laxity with his paint brushes as he ought to and he'll have some fit to eat and wear and keith will too and furthermore and likewise you'll see some differences in this place or my name ain't susan betts them two men have got an awful lot to live up to and i mean they shall understand it right away which explains this array of china and silver i take it observed mrs mcguire dryly uh, what frowned susan doubtfully then her face cleared yes that's just it 
I've got to have things now fitted up to their new estation. We shall get more, too. We need some new teaspoons and forks, and I want em to get some of them bunion spoons. Bunion spoons? Yes, when you eat soup out of em, two-handled cups, you know. Or maybe you don't know, she corrected herself at the odd expression that had come to Mrs. McGuire's face. But I do. Mrs. Professor Hinckley used to have em. They're awful pretty and stylish, too, and we've got to have a lot of other things. New china and some cut glass and— Well, it strikes me, interrupted Mrs. McGuire severely, that Daniel Burton had better be putting his money into Liberty Bonds and Red Cross work instead of silver spoons and cut glass in these war times and— My land, Miss McGuire! With the sudden exclamation, Susan had dropped the spoon she was polishing— her eyes, wild and incredulous, were staring straight into the startled eyes of the woman opposite. "'Do you know, since that yellow telegram came last night telling us Nancy Holworthy was dead, I ain't even once thought of that war.' "'Well, I guess you would think of it if you had my John right before you all the time.' With a bitter sigh, Mrs. McGuire had relaxed in her chair. "'You wouldn't need anything else.' Hm, I don't need anything else with Daniel Burton round.' what do you mean why i mean that man don't do nothing but read war and talk war every minute he's in the house and what with them wheatless days and meatless days he fairly eats war you heard my poem on them meatless wheatless days didn't you mrs mcguire shook her head listlessly her somber eyes were on the lonely figure of her son on the porch across the two back yards you didn't well i'll say it to you then Tain't much, still, it's kind of good in a way. I hadn't written hardly anything lately, but I did write this. We've a wheatless day and a meatless day, and a tasteless, wasteless, sweetless day. But with never a pause, for the good of the cause, we'd even consent to an eatless day. And we would, too, of course. And as far as that's concerned, there's a good many other kinds of less days I'm thinking wouldn't hurt none of us. How about a fretless day and a worryless day? Wouldn't they be great? And only think what a talkless day'd mean to in some households I could mention. Oh, of course, present company always accentuated, she hastened to add with a sly chuckle, as Mrs. McGuire stirred into a sudden resentment. Hm, subsided Mrs. McGuire, still a little resentfully. And I'm free to confess that there's some kinds of less days that we've already got plenty of went on Susan after a moment's thoughtful pause. There's folks that take quite enough workless days and laughless days and pitiless days and thankless days. My land, there ain't no end to them kind, as any one can see. And there was them heatless days last winter. I guess no one was hankering for more of them. Oh, of course, I understand that that was just preserving of coal and that was necessary and all that. And that's another thing, too, this preservation business. I'd like to add a few things to that and make em preserve in fault-finding and crossness and backbiting and gossip as well as in coal and sugar and wheat and beef. Mrs. McGuire gave a short laugh. My goodness, Susan, if you ain't the limit and no mistake, I suppose you mean conservation. Huh? What's that? Well, conservation, then. What's the difference, anyway? She scoffed a bit testily. Then abruptly her face changed. But there, this ain't settling what I'm going to do with Daniel Burton, she finished with a profound sigh. 
do with him puzzled mrs mcguire yes susan picked up the silver spoon and began indifferently to polish it tain't no use for me to be doin' all this daniel burton won't know whether he's eaten with a silver spoon or one made of pewter no more will he retire to a life of ease and laxity with his paint-brushes unless they declare peace to-morrow morning you don't mean he'll stay in the store susan made a despairing gesture goodness only knows what he'll do i don't know i know what he does now and he's as uneasy as a fish out of water and he roams the house from one end to the other every night after he reads the paper he's got one of them war maps on his wall and he keeps changing the pins and flags and i hear him muttering under his breath you see he has to keep it from keith all he can for keith hisself feels so bad cause he can't be up and doin and if he thought he was keepin his father back from helpin i don't know what the poor boy would do but i think if twain't for keith daniel burton would try to enlist and go over oh of course he's beyond the malicious age as far as being drafted is concerned and you wouldn't naturally think such a mild-tempered looking man would go in much for killin but this war has stirred him up something awful well who wouldn't it oh i know that and i ain't sayin as how it shouldn't but that don't make it easier for daniel burton to keep his feelings hid from his son particularly when it's that son that made him have these feelings partly there ain't no doubt but that one of the things that's made daniel burton so fidgety and uneasy and ready to just fling hisself into that ravine conflict over there is his unhappiness and disappointment over keith he had such big plans for that boy yes i know we all have big plans for our boys mrs mcguire choked and turned away and girls too for that matter hurried on susan with a quick glance into the other's face and speaking of girls did you see hattie turner on the street last night dumbly mrs mcguire answered with a shake of her head her eyes had gone back to her son's face across the yard well i did her charlie's at camp devon's you know they say he's invited to more places every sunday than he can possibly accept and that he's petted and praised and made of everywhere he goes and tended right up so he won't get lonesome or attend unquestionable entertainments well that's all right and good of course as it should be but i wish somebody'd take up charlie turner's wife and invite her to sunday dinners and take her to ride and see that she didn't attend unquestionable entertainments why susan betts what an idea protested mrs mcguire suddenly sitting erect in her chair hattie turner isn't fightin for her country no but her husband is retorted susan crisply and she's fightin for her honor and her future peace and happiness and she's doin it all alone she's pretty as a picture and nothin but a child when he married her four months ago and we've taken away her natural provider and entertainer and left her nothin but her freedom for a ballast wheel and i say i wish some of the patriotic people who are just showerin every charlie turner with attentions would please sprinkle just a few on charlie's wife to help her keep her straight and sweet and honest for charlie when he comes back hm maybe murmured mrs mcguire rising wearily to her feet but there ain't many that think of that there'll be more think of it by and by when it's too late observed susan succinctly as she too rose from her chair End of chapter twenty six recording by sunny